In chapter 11 of John's Gospel, verse 45, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find our text this morning on page 898. So we'll begin our reading in verse 45 of John 11, and then take it through verse 11 of chapter 12. And then I'll pray for our time, and and we'll get going into the passage. So here once again, as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death, and Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus, and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, and not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the well, Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do praise you that your righteousness is forever, that your word is true. We rejoice even at your word in the gospel this morning, like those who have found great treasure. Because of your righteous rules, we have come to praise you. We rise even now to see you, longing to enjoy the promise of life that's found in our Savior. So give us a life according to your word that we may respond with faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated. My first and only visit to Texas Stadium happened when I was an 18-year-old in October of 2002. A friend and I went one evening not to watch the Dallas Cowboys play, but to hear a man named Billy Graham preach. Billy Graham is arguably the greatest evangelist in church history. He's inarguably the person who in church history has preached to more people in person than anyone else in church history. And we went down to see him preach because he was coming through the DFW Metroplex for the last time in his ministry. And so we gathered there at Texas Stadium with 82,000 other people to hear Billy Graham preach for what proved to be the last time in, in Dallas, at least preach in person. Now, I had grown up in a tradition very familiar with Billy Graham. The ministries of the churches of my youth, I think, were very much shaped by his preaching ministry and his earnestness to call sinners to Jesus Christ. Even I can remember moments of my childhood where it was quite normal to see Billy Graham pop up on the television and see him preaching at some of these major cities throughout the United States on public channels uh, there at home. And so as we sat there up in the nosebleed section, my friend and I, we, uh, we heard what was, for anyone familiar with his ministry, a rather typical Billy Graham sermon. He began by uh, talking about the present problems uh, facing American culture. He then turned to a passage in the Gospels and showed from that passage quite clearly and earnestly that Jesus was the answer for all the sinners in the room. And then typical to Billy Graham began to close his sermon by urging and appealing to people to respond appropriately. I even remember that he said, we may never see a site like this in the Metroplex again. And over 20 years on, it's actually, I think, quite true that we still haven't seen a site like that in the Metroplex. And as he came to his conclusion, he began to urge and began to appeal. He began to persuade people in the room, what will you do with Jesus? And I sat up there again, way up in the rafters is what it seemed like, and watched what people do with Jesus. Some stayed, some left. Some prayed, some wept. Some went down to the front of the room, some went off to the bathrooms. And you could begin to see there in front of your very experience the various responses that belong to people when confronted with the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? And the reason I tell you that is because we come to a text today, however disparate the scenes might seem to you, that I want to unite under this question, what will you do with Jesus? Because this text, as we continue studying John's gospel, is helping us understand, yet again, the Apostle John is interested primarily in two things, isn't he? That you know who Jesus is, and that you respond faithfully to who Jesus is. So it's a text that gives us all of these interesting scenes. We have this ironic prophecy given by the high priest at the time of Passover, uh, we, of course, have Jesus' departure to wilderness town one last time before he appears in Jerusalem, one last time before his death. You have this extravagant offering and display of devotion in Martha's, I'm sorry, Mary's response to Jesus there at Simon's house. And then you even have, of course, for the first time in John's gospel, Judas Iscariot 
speaking. And you can even hear as John recounts Judas's place that night, some six days before Jesus was going to die, as John's recounting it with pronounced distaste and even his, his righteous indignation of what Judas was going to do. But, but it's a text that actually has clear bookends, doesn't it? If you notice again, verse 45 in chapter 11, many of the Jews believed in him. And then verse 11 of chapter 12, on account of him, that being Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And at the bookends, if you will, of this kind of three parts to our text, you have a plot to kill Jesus and then a plot to kill Lazarus. And right in the middle, you have this display of devotion in Mary that the other gospel writers will record Jesus as saying is a display of devotion that's going to be told basically throughout human history. As long as the gospel is being preached, this display of devotion is going to be uh, talked about. But what I want to do is take what's before us this morning and show you four different responses to that question of what will you do with Jesus? There are a few questions you can ask that so rapidly divide people in their response. A few questions you could ask that so clearly draw a line in the spiritual sand. What will you do with Jesus? And John is always, in scene after scene, page after page, paragraph after paragraph, confronting us with that question. What are you going to do with Jesus? This is who he is. What are you going to do with it? Surely that's why if you were to reach, reach out to someone seeking in the faith or perhaps someone newly converted to the Christian faith, it seems much more often than not the book of the Bible that people recommend most to such seekers and young converts is John's gospel because it's just so simple. This is who Jesus is. Now what are you going to do with him? So we're going to see four responses. Opposition. Devotion, impersonation, fascination. That's what I want to show you today. So first, you might respond with opposition. Look again, verse 45 of John 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So students, I hope you remember what we looked at last week. What it was that these Jews who had come with Mary had seen Jesus do. Now, you might recall early on in chapter 11, uh, Jesus loved these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the sisters sent for Jesus one day saying, hey, Lazarus is on his deathbed. Jesus, come. Presumably, they wanted him to come so he would heal him of his sickness. And what we saw last week was Jesus decided to delay in order that Lazarus might die. Uh, he wasn't interested in fixing that present problem of suffering. He was interested in a miraculous display of his glory, one of these messianic miracles, actually the final sign of such glory that you find in John's gospel in this section we often refer to as the book of signs. So he delayed a few days. His love created a lack of action. And then he showed up, didn't he, a few days later. He went to Lazarus's tomb. Mary with these Jews who were at her house went too. And what did he say? Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come forth. And kids, you remember... Lazarus walked out in all of his buried bindings. And many of the Jews, seeing that, believed in Jesus. But we're not surprised at this point in our study of John's gospel that many people didn't believe in Jesus, in spite of the fact that his greatest miraculous sign was just displayed before their very attention. You'll notice as the text continues that more than a few became little more children than being spiritual tattletales. 
Because you see, verse 46 says, they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, it was several decades ago that a pastor in the West Coast published a book that became something of a bestseller. Certainly, it increased his platform and stirred up no small amount of interest and controversy as he came along in this book and even in his ministry there on the West Coast, said the day for evangelism that focused on preaching. Well, that day's past. No longer do people care about words in evangelism, as the title of his book suggested. What, what this generation needs is power evangelism. Now, what he meant by that was, we don't need preaching evangelism. We need the evangelism that comes through signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, but I trust you see that John's gospel is helping us understand that the greatest signs, the greatest miracles, the greatest wonders that humans could ever possibly see, more often than not, lead to more people than not rejecting who Jesus is. Lazarus comes forth from the tomb, and as the text in the subsequent chapters is going to make clear, there are not many people that believe in Jesus in spite of the fact that he can raise the dead. People are more interested in what they can do and making Jesus disappear, not least of which is what verse 47 speaks about, is the chief priests and the Pharisees gathering the council. Council here is this word that other gospels and texts would translate as the Sanhedrin. It's the supreme court in Israel. Seventy men that would often sit in this semicircle and they would adjudicate matters in the land. It was full of these rival parties within Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so these 70 men, they come together after hearing these reports that Jesus has raised someone from the dead and rather than repent of their sin, rather than believe in him, they're interested in how they can silence him, aren't they? Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And it's important you see what their concern is here in verse 48. It's principally one of politics. Uh, they're thinking Jesus exclusively as a political Messiah. That he's going to come. The people are going to gather around him and Rome's going to hear about this new king of the Jews and he's going to overthrow Roman tyranny, overthrow the Roman Empire. And so before that happens, uh, they're going to come and basically wipe off Jerusalem, the temple. That We're going to, we're going to lose our, our nation is what they're saying. Because the Jews at the time, they, they wanted a Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah like the Messiah who Jesus was, that they couldn't comprehend, that they were altogether confused about. So you have these 70 men seated there as the Sanhedrin. So oftentimes, they're at war with one another in matters of theology, but their united hatred of Jesus brings them together. And the text tells us that Caiaphas, the high priest that year, he speaks up. And one of the interesting things that uh, history records about this frankly, rivalry that existed between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was just how different they were, not just in matters of, of ministry, not just in matters of theology, but we're told even in matters of their spirituality. Uh, the, these records that have come down to us through church history, interestingly, especially when you see what the Pharisees do with Jesus in the Gospels, speaks about the Pharisees as these kind of kind, gentle men in their ministry in Israel, whereas the Sadducees, as Josephus would say, savage in their conduct. They were known as the rude ones in Israel. 
And Caiaphas, a Sadducee, the high priest, shows just how rude of a ruler he is. You'll notice what we're told in verse 50. I'm sorry, verse 49. He speaks up and says, you know nothing at all. Kids, it'd be easy to say something like, you're just a bunch of fools. You're worried about this? Here's the answer. We kill him. We need not worry about anything else. We need to kill him. Look what he says, verse 50. You don't even understand. It's better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. And maybe you see the irony, this great irony found in verse 50 where Caiaphas says, if we kill him, we're going to save the nation. We're actually killing him as what brought God's judgment upon the nation. Following Jesus, of course, is what would bring life to the nation. So verse 53 gives us the conclusion of the matter. From that day forward, they made plans to put him to death. You might respond with opposition. You might also, you could possibly respond with devotion. Verse 54 tells us that he departs to a wilderness area and soon Passover arrives. You'll notice verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. Uh, Students, this was one of the three great pilgrim feasts in Israel's religious calendar. Every male aged 12 and up was required to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for what was this kind of religious high point in Israel's life when they would commemorate and in many ways reenact God's deliverance of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. A deliverance came through this Passover lamb, the final plague falling upon Egypt. It was a time in which the city was buzzing with religious electricity. And you'll notice, as verse 56 tells us, the city is buzzing in large part because they wonder if Jesus is going to show up. They know that the Pharisees have put a warrant out for his arrest. There's a bounty on his head. And even implicit in the question, you'll see at the end of verse 56, that he will not come to the feast at all. Well, what they're saying there is, surely he won't show up. He knows everybody's ready to hand him over to the religious leaders. Yet, verse 1 of chapter 12 opens, notice, six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, something like two miles away from Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So you want to think just briefly about the fact that here we are at the beginning of John chapter 12, and we're only, it's not exactly clear which night this would have happened in the week before Jesus' death, but it seems best to take this meal that follows as happening, that Sabbath evening, so Saturday night before Jesus died, something like six days before he was going to go to the cursed cross at Calvary, and we have almost a full half of John's gospel left that's concerned with what? Those final days of Jesus. Uh, that, that final week of Jesus before he was killed. It's, it's the most momentous week in human history. And the reason it's the most momentous week is because Jesus' death is the center of this gospel. We have to meditate slowly and carefully even fully on what it means that Jesus came to die for sinners. And now as John spins his narrative ever forward, it just gets more and more focused on that day when he was going to die. And there at the house of Simon the leper, as we're told in other gospels, he's getting ready to be anointed for his 
death, prepared even for his burial. You'll see in verse 2, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. It seems best probably to take this dinner as something of an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving from Martha and Mary's family for what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. We, we know from other gospel accounts, a man named Simon the leper was also there. It was at his house. So we can be sure that at least what's happening in this dinner room is you have 15 men, Lazarus, Simon, Jesus, and the 12 disciples, reclining there at the table. Martha is doing what she normally does, which is serve. And then Mary comes to do what she normally does, which is fall down before Jesus' feet. You see verse 3, this response of devotion, she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Again, it's one of the most noble and beautiful responses you can find to Jesus Christ in all the Gospels. And I want you to, I want you to see a couple of things about, about Mary's response here to Jesus. I want you to see, first of all, it's thankfulness. Because if we're right to understand that this is a meal that's, that's given in an expression of gratitude and, and thanksgiving for Jesus' grace, for his power, his, his mercy in raising Lazarus from the dead, that Mary is there at his feet, full of thankfulness, offering an act of devotion unto the Lord. And it's such a central part of the Christian life, isn't it? Responding with devotion, thankful devotion to what Jesus has done for us. Perhaps the Spirit's poking and and prodding in your heart this day might lead you to conviction to realize it's been quite some time before you fell at Jesus' feet with thankfulness for what he has done. It's not just that you need to see her thankfulness in the offering, but also the costliness. Because verse 3 says it's an expensive ointment. So kids, you just need to think about perfume. Made from pure nard. Well, Judas is going to go on to say in just a minute that it's, it's an offering worth 300 denarii, which won't mean a whole lot to you, I assume. But what that just means is it was a year's worth wages. So however you had just said things for inflation, what, what Mary is pouring over Jesus in that moment would be akin in our time to offering a gift to Jesus of $45,000, a gift of such year's worth of salary to Jesus, such as the costliness of her devotion. And maybe you know this story in the Old Testament of Ornan, who well, was David was wanting his place for a sacrifice, and Ornan said, I'm not going to offer something to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything, is what David says in response. And every Christian knows that what it means to be devoted to the Lord is going to require a costly devotion. What's the last thing that costed you something? in your life of service to the king. It's not just its thankfulness and costliness. You'll see also its extravagance. She anointed Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. If old school Presbyterians were there that night at the meal, they would have been in a ruckus. There's no decency and order in wiping a man's feet with hair. Even letting down your hair in the Jewish culture of the time was completely frowned upon. Only women with loose morals did such things. Only the lowest of servants would wipe feet. And here's Mary letting her hair down. Evidently, children, she had a lot of it. And she begins to wipe Jesus' feet. 
such as the extravagance of the gift, the costliness of the gift. And of course, there's a fullness in the gift too. You see the end of verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Yeah, children, if, if your home is anything like the one in which I grew up in, and to some degree the one in which I currently live, there are a few things that might delight you as much as walking in to the house afternoon after a long day of school, a long day of work, and you can smell something sweet. Something has been cooked in the oven, and it's a fragrance that fills the whole house. Chocolate chip cookies, brownies, maybe, maybe an apple pie. But here is the fragrance, the costliest of perfumes, filling the entire house. And I trust you know that Christian devotion is something like that. That where the Christian goes, there's this fullness in the devotion that it tends to fill rooms, that it tends to fill conversations, that it tends to saturate dinner tables, such as a love for the Savior. But what's interesting about John's gospel is he actually doesn't care a whole lot, at least by way of comparison to other gospels, about this act of devotion. He's more interested really in the third response. Because there's the response of opposition. You might secondly respond with devotion. But when he turns his attention to Judas in verse 4 and following, it gives us a third response. You might respond with impersonation. Verse 4 says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was who about to betray Jesus said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And in ways that maybe you haven't seen before, as John is surely decades later writing this gospel, uh, you can hear, can't you, the tone of his righteous indignation over what Judas did, in many ways who Judas was. Because think about it in light of verse 6. John says, he comments, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John says, we dare not attribute to Judas a righteous motive in what he said. We could have given all this money to the poor. Oh, what's Judas soon going to show in only a few days' time? But he's a disciple with fake faith. He's an impersonator. He's an imposter in following Jesus. And it ought to strike you the kind of impersonator and imposter that he was. He was a man that was specifically called by Jesus to join with the twelve. For three years he had been with Jesus. For three years he had heard Jesus preach in a way that blew people's minds. For three years he had seen all of these majestic works that Jesus had performed revealing his glory. He had enjoyed himself even some of that authority as he was sent out. And he preached in power The gospel text will say, he even exercised demons and worked wonders. And in the end, what is Judas? But a faker, an impersonator. And don't you know in context, maybe even specifically context like ours in North Texas, in churches like ours, of size even like ours, that there can be impersonators sitting and listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ? For years and years and years, you've had everyone fooled into thinking that you're a faithful follower of Jesus. But in reality, your heart is still in the far country of sin. 
Such is what's happening here with Judas. And so what does he receive but a rebuke from Jesus? Notice verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He understands that this is an anointing preparing him for the burial soon to come in a week's time. He says, verse 8, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And if you take this text with the other gospel accounts, it's quite clear that this rebuke from Jesus is what pushed Judas over the edge. It's this rebuke from Jesus that, that drove him, ironically, to say, in light of Mary's 300 shekel offering, that's the worth she put on Jesus. Judas says, I'll give him to you for 30. Such is the worth that he places on Jesus. Maybe you know that sometimes a simple way you can discern a true follower of Christ Jesus is what they do with his rebukes. Do they take it as the rebuke of a friend of sinners who means to grow them in godliness and call them to account for sin that they may know again his mercy and grace? Or maybe you're a person like Judas that at that first rebuke, at that first disagreement, you run away. You might respond with opposition. You might respond with devotion. You might respond with impersonation. Final response, verse 9 through 11. You might respond with fascination. Because remember, we're here at Passover week. It's about ready to begin. Everyone is eager. The, the city is buzzing. Is Jesus going to show up? They hear he has arrived. Look at verse 9. A large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. It's clear enough, as the story is going to continue, that these are people that are curious about Christ. These are people that are fascinated by Jesus, but they don't actually have true faith. You see here, part of their fascination lies in, in, in Lazarus. He's almost like this spiritual circus trick in front of them. That man that came back from the dead. Let's see him. Many believed, but most didn't. So many people today, of course, can be fascinated with what Jesus has done. They can be fascinated even in Jesus' people. But they may, that might not lead them to true faith. It may actually lead them ultimately to another kind of antagonism. Right? You see that in verse 10. The chief priests now, of course, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. It's a pattern that becomes common throughout church history. Plotting against the Christ invariably means powers will start to plot against the church. If we need to put him down, we also need to put them down. So what have you done with Jesus? A few weeks ago in one of the Monday classes that I teach at the seminary, we were talking about the difference, because there is a difference, between preaching and teaching. And as I drove home later that afternoon, I remembered the story, this conversation that I've had before with an acquaintance in ministry. His father was a pastor for 60 years, preaching, teaching, evangelizing. And this friend of mine who has taught preaching classes in other seminaries before once asked his dad, Dad, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And his dad simply said in a rather eloquent 
and clear way, he said, preaching demands a verdict. Now what he's saying is, rightly saying, well, teaching explains, but preaching exhorts. And that's what John's gospel is continually doing for you. It's exhorting you to what? Know that Jesus is God's only son, that believing in him, you would have eternal life. I wonder how you have responded to Jesus. You might respond. You might have responded. You might be responding with opposition, impersonation, or fascination. Of course, there's only one response that is demanded, the right response of devotion. So as we come to the end here, let me see if I can pull on two other things in the text. Evidence, if you will, that urges you to respond rightly to Jesus, to make a verdict of belief in Jesus, the first of which is his departure. His departure. Go back to chapter 11. Look at verse 54. Something we alluded to a few weeks ago in our sermon and study at the end of John 10. It says, Jesus, therefore, because of the plot they've hatched, no longer walked openly among the Jews. There's nothing more terrifying that happens more often than you might realize in Scripture when God, when Christ, goes silent towards a people. Does not the Bible say that God will not always strive? He will not always contend with people. That there is a point to which you might eventually get that is past the point of, of any return. Don't you know as well as I do that none of us, you hearing me preaching, are guaranteed another sermon that could come in the evening service today. Such could be the silence of Christ that falls upon our lives, let alone another sermon next Sunday. But the good news is, if you're wondering, maybe, maybe Jesus has gone silent towards me. Maybe he's no longer walking openly in my life. Well, you can take heart today and trust that even through the ministry of his word and spirit right now, he's walking openly among us, isn't he? The point is, you're not guaranteed for him to continue to do that for week after week, month after month, year after year, and decade after decade. This could be the last time. It ought to urge us to a right response to Jesus, but it's not just his departure. It's also, of course, his death. Because everything's now barreling forward to Jesus' death. And notice what John tells us about Caiaphas' word in verse 51 of chapter 11. He did not say this. He didn't realize what he was doing is what John said. Sometimes unbelievers preach the truth and they don't even understand it. He didn't say this of his own accord. But he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only but also to gather into one God's children who are scattered abroad. One of the richest and most essential realities of the good news that we call the gospel is that it's good news of substitution, that a Savior dies for sinners. And don't you see the gospel of substitution prophesied here only a week before it was going to take place, as John says, that Jesus would die for his people. What you need to understand is that everyone must die for their sin unless Jesus Christ is clung to such that he becomes the substitute. Because if you remain 
in a response like opposition, impersonation, or fascination. The day's coming when you will die for your sin and be punished for all eternity. But if that response of heartfelt devotion to Jesus Christ and faith and belief comes, the good news of the gospel is he dies for you. In your place, to gather you, as the prophecy says, into God's family, we who are scattered abroad, we who are as far away from Jerusalem, Israel as Collin County, Texas. His departure ought to encourage you to today consider what you are doing with Jesus and understand this glorious, merciful death for sinners. No better sight could you hear about in your mind's eye than the beauty of that cursed cross at Calvary where a substitute was found so that someone like you doesn't have to die for the sin, a death you deserve, but he's taken your place. Perhaps then, like Mary, you leave here today knowing something of that thankfulness, that extravagance, that costliness, that fullness of a devotion because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that Jesus Christ is a Savior who knew no sin, but he became sin for us, that we might know, that we might receive, that we might be clothed in your righteousness, a righteousness received by faith alone. Help us to know that mercy, that grace and salvation found in our beloved Savior this day, in whose name we pray, amen.